You're listening to the podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Um, hi, thank you for coming. Um, we really, really appreciate it. Um, obviously, we've been working very hard on this campaign for a while, and it's really nice to see so many people turn out to support it. Um, I'm just going to pass over to Hannah uh, to tell you some stuff about Justice for Cleaners, and then we'll get started. And I do apologise for the late start. Um, that's very so out of fashion, but there we go. But I'll pass it over to Hannah and... Um, yeah, that's what I'll do. <laughs> yeah, so, um, hi, I'm Hannah. Um, I work in the union, but I'm also a member of the Justice for Cleaners campaign. So I'll just quickly give you a brief uh, bio about that in case you haven't heard of it. Uh, the Justice for Cleaners campaign's been running for, is it seven or eight years now? Eight, eight years. Um, it's started by and led by cleaners in this university, and it's a struggle against outsourcing. So. Uh, they were originally employed directly by SARS and then their labour was outsourced to external private companies, um, multinational companies as well. Um, and I guess at the heart of their struggle is a struggle against the various ways in which labour is racialised, gendered and classed. Um, so it really does relate to an event like this. Um, and in the process of struggling to get uh, living wage, sorry, it's too low. <laughs> Living wage, holiday pay and sick pay, eight of the cleaners were deported when the school collaborated with the UK border agency. So this is very much a migration struggle as well. Um, a little why this is relevant today as well is also that the school is currently in the process of a, a further outsourcing project. So they are renewing the, the cleaners contract um, and are intending to outsource it for outsource them and additional workers for another five years. And Three of the companies shortlisted are complicit in securitization, maintenance, and militarization of borders. So, not people we want to be giving billions of pounds of money to. So, uh, you should really get, consider getting involved. We've got an event this Monday at 7 pm in the Kalili Lecture Theatre. Sorry, no, in the Lucas Lecture Theatre, which is just as you walk into SARS and is coincidentally also the room where the uh, raid the border agency raid occurred. So there's a there's a lot of symbolic value to that room and it's an important room for the campaign to reclaim in many ways. So please do come along to that. Follow us on Facebook, it's Justice for Clean Desires. Join our mailing list, just come and speak to me or any of these two here waving <laughs> at the end. And like, please, please work with us to try and resist this outsourcing process. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> Um, thank you, Hannah. And yeah, as Hannah was saying, it's really important to get involved in uh, the Justice for Cleaners uh, campaign because all of these campaigns are linked, really, in the way that SOAS is run. And you know, our struggle is very much their struggle and vice versa. So please do get involved. Buy a T-shirt, wear it to your lectures and all your lectures. Um, but welcome, and thank you for coming along to Education Beyond Borders. Um, I know there's been a little bit of confusion as the uh, the names have changed of the society and the campaign, but thank you for bearing with us. Um, just to give you a really brief description about what we're trying to do here, um, essentially, well, I'm sure as many of you would have seen, SARS has announced some refugee scholarships, um, which sort of in itself seems like quite a positive move forward. However, um, they're not really what we asked for. They're not creating any new access. What they are doing is giving fee waivers to people who already have access to student finance. So... Um, yeah, they're, they're basically taking existing statuses and trying to just 
get a little bit of credit, basically, getting in on the refugee crisis media attention and just trying to seem like they're being good about that. But they're actually not. What we want also, as really, is to um, to give us people in the asylum process and people w- without permanent um, status in the UK access to education and that that access has to actually be accessed, so not just a fee waiver, not just your fees paid, but also maintenance. You know, when we consider that people in the asylum pro- process are living off about £36 a week, um, you know, how, you know, we whinge about having no money as students and we've got a lot more money than £36 a week. So it's really, really important that we support this campaign and that we support others, you know, for all of you who've been to university or at university at the moment, support others to share in such a privilege that we're, we're, we're able to have just by being here and by being able to study um, and it's obviously why you're here so we're really really grateful for you getting involved and um, we are in the process of um, putting together a working group with the management of SOAS to try and get these scholarships to actually represent something which is helpful um, and which is actually supporting people to come here and have access where they didn't um, so hopefully that will move forward and we really want you all to be involved with signing our petition or joining the Facebook and you'll see on the back of your speaker biography uh, that there is all the statuses listed if there's any confusion um, and what these people have access to and what they don't have access to just so that when we are asking for the school to support, we know what we're asking for and that we're making really informed uh, sort of just arguments with them because they actually turns out really don't, they don't know. So if we go armed with that knowledge then we're on the front foot immediately. Um, that's enough from me because I don't really know what I'm talking about <laughs> and these people do so I'm going to pass over to our speakers um, just to say a little bit uh, about each one and obviously uh, they'll all be talking for a little while and then afterwards if you want to ask any questions at the end you know, please make a note of those and we'll take questions to the panel um, speaking first will be Emily and Emily works um, as a programmes manager at Refugee Support Network and um, so Emily will be telling us a little bit and these are all people who know different things about the process in which we're trying to affect change at, here at SOAS. Um, Theodros will also be speaking, who's the director at Reconnect and uh, an associate l- lecturer at Birkbeck University, who does some really, really interesting work on uh, retraining people who are coming to the UK. Uh, who is the project coordinator at Let Us Learn, um, so another fantastic person with some really important insights, and I'm really looking forward to hearing that as well. Abdi Aziz should be sitting there, <laughs> but he's in a Skype meeting and he's going to be here uh, in a minute. He's someone whose time is very much um, valuable, so really lucky to have him here. And he's the ex-president of the student unions at Sheffield University. Pretty much any campaign at any university where you see this kind of education beyond borders or this campaign running at any other university, you'll see his face somewhere along the line. So he, we're very lucky to have him here. Um, but well, yeah, once again, thank you very, very much for coming. I hope you enjoy the event and, and I'll pass you over to Emily. Thank you. Um, is the volume right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I did my master's at SOAS a few years ago, so it's really nice to be back here. And I think it's the first time I've actually sat down here rather than up there. And I didn't realise how disconcerting it must be for people speaking, that everyone always sits at the ends, which is what I used to do as well. So thank you to those of you who were choosing to sit in the middle. <laughs> um, I'd like to start this evening by telling you uh, about a young person called Hamid, and I'm going to tell you his story in his own words. I came to the UK from Afghanistan when I was 16 years old. The reason was the conflict, which resulted in losing both my parents. First I had to face the pain of losing my parents, then the lonely journey which had no direction. I mean, I didn't know where I was going, only to run for the safety of my life. And now I had to lose education, which was the only hope that kept me going to succeed. 
the desire to become a useful, independent person in society. So Hamid arrived in the UK and he was put into the care system. He learnt English and studied hard, and he really hoped to apply to university, but he had problems doing so because he didn't yet have permanent leave from the UK. He continues, At that point I felt on the edge of disaster. Refugee Support Network helped me communicate my situation to the university and to apply for extra financial support. I started thinking that there is someone who can listen to me and understand me. This was a great turning point in my life. I finally managed to find my way to university, where I'm now in my second year studying engineering. I'm extremely thankful to the kind people who guided me during this process and gave me reasons to dream again. Finally, I would like to send a strong message to all those who have the same issue as me, that there is still hope. I still remember the day that Hammy came into our office with his university student card, and he was so excited, it was the first time he had a piece of ID that wasn't connected to his immigration status. It made him feel normal and excited about his future. Almost all the young refugees I know in the UK, and I'm using the term refugee quite loosely here, tell us that education is key to rebuilding their lives. They tell us that education means hope. For the last six years, Refugee Support Network has been helping young refugees to build more hopeful futures through education. We run a range of advice, guidance, advocacy and mentoring programmes to help young refugees get into, stay in and do well in education, including in their higher education. However, getting into and doing well in higher education is not easy. And I'd like to set the scene for tonight's discussion by outlining the barriers that young people like Hamid face when they're trying to access higher education, to tell you about some of the solutions that have been devised over the past few years, and to think about where we are now and how together we can do more in this area. So firstly, the barriers. Um, Hamid had come to the UK from Afghanistan as an unaccompanied asylum-seeking child at the age of 16. He was granted discretionary leave to remain, a temporary status which gave him permission to stay in the UK until he was 18. At that time, he applied for an extension of his leave. The majority of young people in his situation actually get their leave to remain refused, their extension refused. However, in his case, after a couple of years of waiting, this extension of his temporary leave was finally granted. He'd been in limbo for several years and was really scared at the prospect of possibly being sent back to Afghanistan. So this additional three years of leave came as a real relief to him. However, he soon discovered that moving forward in his education was not going to be plain sailing. Firstly, he discovered that he would be classified as an international student and would be charged tuition fees at the international rate. He then discovered that he would not be entitled to finance from a student loan company available to home students to pay their university tuition fees or to a maintenance loan to help with living costs. So Hamid, a bright young person, a care leaver, eager to study engineering at university and become, in his own words, a useful independent person in society, found himself facing huge international <coughs> student fees with no eligibility for student finance. Suddenly higher education was completely out of reach for him and in his words again, I fell on the edge of disaster. And this same eligibility criteria applies to young people who have a pending application for an extension of their discretionary leave to remain or USC leave for unaccompanied asylum-seeking children, as it's now called. 
And the same applies to people who are still in the asylum process, who have yet to get any sort of leave to remain. So these barriers to higher education, international fee rates, and lack of access to student finance are really prohibitive. At Refugee Support Network, we run an advice line for young people who have questions or need support in progressing to in higher education because of their immigration status. In the last four months alone, we've seen an increased demand for this service and have dealt with over 130 calls. And most of these have addressed the issue of university funding in some way. 14 of these calls were from young people who had an offer of a place at university, but their immigration status was preventing them from actually taking up the offer of that place and starting their course. And these are not just numbers. Each number represents an individual. One person wrote to us saying, I have contacted organisations that you stated, along with some others that I found. Unfortunately, no one is willing to support me for my tuition fees, and most of them never got back to me. I'm having a very depressing and hard time, considering that I'm a very talented student, yet I cannot continue in my education. So what has been done to try and help young people like these overcome the barriers and to move forward in their education? Well, a few years ago, a group of young asylum seekers in Save the Children's Brighter Futures project, which is a national youth-led advocacy group, identified higher education as a big issue for them that they wanted to address. The members of this group were approaching the end of school and facing substantial barriers in moving forward in their education beyond that. So this Brighter Futures group began a campaign that resulted in them persuading a number of universities to create opportunities within their institutions. Several universities offered to reduce tuition fees from the international rate to the home rate for an annual quota of students. And then the University of Manchester decided to implement a new policy stating that any asylum seeker wanting to study there would be charged tuition fees at the home rate. It became clear that both students and universities needed needed support to negotiate a new relationship between higher education institutions and the asylum process, and the Article 26 project was born. The name Article 26 um, derives from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states that everybody has a right to education and that higher education should be accessible to all on the basis of merit. The project was developed to meet the needs of both universities and of students from asylum-seeking backgrounds and became a project of the Helena Kennedy Foundation, which has a long track record of supporting people from disadvantaged backgrounds to overcome significant social and economic barriers to progressing to higher education. Um, Article 26 works um, with a number of universities to help them create a full tuition fee waiver for an asylum-seeking student and has offered a package of support for both students and the university. By 2013, 49 students who would otherwise have been excluded from higher education were able to get into university and to graduate. Article 26 now focuses on supporting universities to create their own scholarships and fee waiver schemes. And since 2014, about 30 places a year in different universities have been made available in this way. So it's really exciting to see that this is happening and that young (coughs) people are able to move forward in their education. Um, So what about now and what happens next? Well, after years of plugging away at this issue through groups like the Brighter Futures campaign, Article 26, suddenly there seems to have been a bit of a ground shift. When the refugee crisis hit the media, hit our TV screens, 
and compassion towards displaced people started to spread, um, in some places at least, higher education was included in this debate. Suddenly there was a realisation that many university students and university-ready young people were being displaced from Syria and losing, among everything else, um, their access to education. There started being talk of a lost generation of young people. And in the words of a Citizens UK campaign, we need to invest in refugees so they can make a full contribution to our society and in the future work to rebuild their own. But globally, just 1% of refugee youth managed to access higher education, in spite of its benefit to individuals and societies, and its role in durable solutions for refugee situations. This is really a tiny number, but we do have a chance now to do something. However, it does raise a few questions that I'd like to pose now and that maybe we can explore later in the discussion time. And some of the calls for scholarship places have just been for resettled refugees, but there are many others, such as those going through the asylum process, young people who came to the UK as unaccompanied asylum-seeking children from countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Eritrea, who are being excluded from higher education and need universities to step in. How can the current momentum around this issue be harnessed to include them as well? And also, who should be included in the scope of these scholarship programmes? Should they just be for refugees and asylum seekers, or are there other excluded groups who should be brought into this? And I'm sure that Dami is going to talk a little bit more about that. So these are some questions, these are unknown things that we're working through, but I want to end just with three things that I do know for sure. Firstly, the lack of access to student finance and categorisation as international students puts university out of the reach of many young people but we know that university fee waivers and scholarships can address this. There is evidence, there are stories, there are statistics, there is best practice to show that this works. And the fact that many universities now charge home fees is great, and it's a really exciting development, but without scholarships and additional financial support, this in itself is not enough. And secondly, the more voices calling for this, the better. If you're a student, you can talk to your institution about this, you can address the concerns that your university might have by showing them best practice that has been developed. Article 26 has created a whole best practice guide that is a really useful tool in this. Or by getting in touch with organisations like us, like Refugee Support Network, to find out more. And finally, I just want to say that this is worth it. It makes a difference to young people who have fled conflict and persecution and often faced really challenging pasts. And I'm going to end with some words from Hamid, whose story I shared at the start. He was able to get to university thanks to his institution using their discretion to reduce his fees and to recategorise him as a home student. In his words, I would like to send a strong message to all those who have the same issue as I had, that there is still hope. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. That was really lovely. Um, and I hope that everyone found that really useful. It is always uh, really helpful to think about it from the point of view of someone going through that process. So thank you very much. Um, next, Theodos will speak. And as I mentioned before, he's the director at Reconnect and associate lecturer at Birkbeck University. So thank you, Theodos. Okay. <coughs> First of all, uh, I would like to thank you for inviting me to share my experience uh, and also to learn from the event. Uh, I would like to focus on the importance of higher education. <coughs> uh, 
and also the challenges refugees face in accessing higher education, mainly drawing on my experience uh, as a refugee. I'm originally from Ethiopia. <clears throat> this topic is very important that I believe deserves an extensive and thorough exposition. All that I intend to do in the short time that I have at my disposal is to reflect on my experience as a refugee working with non-governmental organizations committing to advancing the cause of education and training for refugees and my experience at teaching at establishments such as Berkwick. Yeah, And also I'd like to give some historical perspective as to the scholarship uh, program that were in place in United Kingdom since the early 1980s and where we are now. And that hopefully will help us to understand where we'll be going and what we need to do. Okay. I contend that the funding for refugee higher education in the UK has tended to be a short-term phenomenon, fragmented and lacking broader objectives. I aim to make a case for an integrated approach to supporting refugees higher education in UK. Supporting refugees higher education not only has merits in assisting the realization of potential of unemployed and underemployed refugees, it will also have a long-term dimensions in supporting developmental initiatives in countries where refugees have originated, countries often ravaged by conflict and economic hardship. The first part of my reflection relates to the two non-governmental organizations that I was connected to, as a beneficiary first and employer respectively, both funded by government and governmental sources. The second part of my reflection relates to the non-governmental organization where I currently work called Reconnect. I was a beneficiary of a scholarship program funded by the UK Foreign Office and administered by the World University Service for Refugees from the Horn of Africa. It was mainly focusing for Ethiopian and Eritrean refugees. The program in 1979 brought 18 refugees from the Horn of Africa. Uh, from Kenya, Sudan, and Djibouti. I was a refugee in, in, in Nairobi, in Kenya. The program was eventually phased out at the end of 1980s. <clears throat> the initiative also supported Chilean refugees in the UK. In the 1980s, the main refugee groups were Chileans and people from the Horn of Africa, Ethiopians and Eritreans. And of course, after the mid-1980s, we have more refugees coming from Somalia, but the, the, this program did not continue to, to cater for programs that were coming increasingly from other regions which were uh, experiencing conflict. Now, the other uh, organization that I want to mention, an important organization that supported African refugees, is called the Africa Educational Trust. It has been functioning since 1958. It has, it has uh, I think, sponsored leaders such as uh, Kaunda in Zimbabwe and other important African leaders. Now, the, the, the program it was mainly for refugees in the UK with their education and training. The Trust has depended almost entirely on contributions from international donors, mainly from Nordic countries such as uh, the Swedish International Development Agency and to a lesser degree from UK-based non-governmental organizations. Key scholarship program included those from refugees from South Africa, Namibia, and the Horn of Africa. The program was phased out sometime at the end of 1990s. 
the discontinuation of the scholarship program for UK-based African refugees has left a major void. Now, <clears throat> since the end of the Cold War uh, period, we have been witnessing what appears to be a shift of policy by donors in relation to their overall a training program for developing countries. In general, and Africa in particular, there is more increasing emphasis on new training priorities, the most important of which is to stress in-country training, as opposed to training in the developed countries, such as the UK. Uh, this is often taken as an excuse not to support refugees in the UK, for example, by successive government in the UK. Now, the key reflections that I have in relation to these two programs that I was closely involved to is that since the end of the Cold War, donors have their own agenda in criteria when considering aid for education and training in developing countries, assuming the rationale for aid is a humanitarian one with the aim of assisting the long-term development process of recipient countries, one cannot fail to see the difficult choices that have to be made by donors in allocating finite resources to various needs. Hence the case for trying to prioritize. However, the problem with deciding to prioritize, especially if they are to be adhered to religiously by donor agency policymakers, is the comp comp compartmentalization of factors and issues that are inherently interrelated and complex. Related to this aspect is the concern often expressed by donors that refugees are unlikely to return to their countries of origin and thus assisting them would be a waste of limited resources. Such a belief does not hold water when viewed against the experience of key scholarship agencies such as the Africa Educational Trust, where I worked for 10 years as a program manager. Now, many of the refugees that, uh, that were supported by the Africa Educational Trust from Namibia and South Africa, the majority of them returned, and majority of them are now working in government. I know half a dozen of ambassadors and half a dozen of ministers and a lot of teachers and those running many academic institutions in those countries. Most refugees do eventually return to their countries of origin when they feel it's safe to do so. A tracer study for Namibian refugees funded by Swedish CEDA provides clear evidence to this effect. Or the 60% of students traced, 94 were in, in jobs in Namibia, virtually all of which were either directly related to their studies or for which their studies had been generally relevant. The basis upon which donors generally assist refugees is understandable. Donors would ideally expect refugees to return as soon as they are able to do so to assist the development process of their respective countries. It would, however, be realistic to consider the concept of return of refugees in its wider context. This is something we are trying to do in the organization I'm currently working with. This has, in fact, happened more widely than um, may be appreciated, this, given the useful and relevant experience that they can acquire. Despite the limitation of chores at their disposal, refugees do frequently make their effort to help their country of origin whenever, wherever that may be until they are able to return. There is also appears to be a tendency by donors suddenly to react to the change in the political situation of countries for which scholarships come. 
This is often done by widening down scholarship program with a view to discontinuing them. A change of government in many cases does not lead to an overnight improvement in a state of things in countries that have been ravaged by the case of conflict, war, and economic hardships. Under circumstances of <coughs> sudden political change, it would be naive and damaging to drastically reduce scholarship programs, even when the political scene is apparently very promising. The decontinuation of scholarship by donors for a particular country program should be a gradual process, and one that accommodates the needs of use of refugees themselves and the needs of new refugees that come along. As I mean, a refugee phenomena is a continuous phenomena. The case for continuing support for the education and training of refugees will, will remain as strong as ever until side time at the vicious circle of forced displacement and these underlying factors are addressed. The declared intention of donors to strengthen the educational <coughs> structure of developing countries in order to assist the long-term development process should be welcomed and encouraged. However, there is a real need to see education and training in this wider and longer-term context in which refugees plays an integral part. Now, the organization I work with now, I would like also to reflect on that, our experience in advancing the cause of higher education for refugees in the UK, specifically in London. Reconnect is a not-for-profit organization that I now work with, was established in 2003. It works with unemployed and underemployed refugees, training, supporting, mentoring, and enabling them to gain teaching qualification in the UK to work in further and higher education in their areas of expertise. We also work with refugee journalists to facilitate journalism qualifications, to enable them to work in the media and use their skills to effectively tell their stories to the communities and beyond. We have also organized events and roundtables to raise awareness on issues relating to refugee communities and international development. Over several years, we have worked very actively with refugee teachers. One element that has been the partnership that we forged with the University of London, with Birkbeck and the Institute of Education, to facilitate the training and requalification of unemployed and underemployed refugees. So far, we have supported, in partnership with this organization, 54 refugees, 30 men and 24 men, from 20 countries of origin, mainly from Sub-Saharan Africa, to enable them to gain qualified teacher status. Now, the term refugee uh, for our organization uh, is, uh, to a light degree, uh, has a developmental dimension. We define refugees as those uh, with, who have been recognized as refugees under the Geneva Convention or who have been granted humanitarian protection and discretionary leave to remain, formerly known as exceptional leave to remain, and also those who have obtained indefinitely to remain, or have been refugees that who have now UK citizenship. So this has a wider uh, definition. It might also be helpful uh, to look at in some depths uh, of my experience at Reconnect, the organization I co-founded and worked with, you know, to highlight the education of refugee teachers has become a victim of political expediency by successive governments, and to point out the lack of concerted effort to put up in place 
viable support for refugees education, especially in higher education. The two-teacher training program that we initiated came to an abrupt end in 2008 and 2011, respectively. The first teacher training program called Passport in Teacher Teaching Plus, implemented in partnership with Birkbeck and funded by the Home Office Refugee Integration Challenge Fund, which eventually came to an end. The program enabled 14 refugees to gain a postgraduate level certificate in teaching in lifelong learning, a nationally recognized qualification. The program funding, however, came to an end with the project as it was provided as a one-off basis. The second Pathways in Teaching for Refugees was conducted with a partnership with the Institute of Education, with funding from the Department of Children, Schools and Families, the current Department of Education. The, the qualification included 150 hours of teaching placement at various London colleges. Now, the 54 refugees that we, we supported to, to gain this qualification are now, most of them, over 90% are teaching in further education in London. The impact of such short-term funding regimes often provided one of basis has been devastating to the education need and the aspiration of many unemployed and underemployed refugees and to the infrastructure that were built to support them. We continue to seek funding to restart the program. After, uh, allow me to say a few words about our current groundbreaking initiative that we are undertaking at Recornate to demonstrate the long benefits of supporting refugees to access higher education in the UK. We are piloting a project subject to funding in South Sudan and Ethiopia, which may expand to other countries should this initiative be a success. The pilot project aims at alleviating the critical shortage of qualified teachers in South Sudan and Ethiopia, higher education sector, particularly in the fields of science, engineering and technology by facilitating the skills, the skills transfer of 15 UK-based refugee teachers whom we have supported to train. Now, the proposed pilot project has been developed through a long process of consultations and informed by a feasibility study undertaken in 2014 with refugee teachers and other relevant organizations and individuals in the UK. South Sudan and Ethiopia. The project idea received a very positive reception from governments of Ethiopia and South Sudan, so much that the, dis the discussions released resulted in the signing of a memorandum of understanding between Reconnect and their respective Ministry of Education in two countries. The pilot project represents an opportunity for the participant refugees to employ their skills where they are most needed while simultaneously driving forward development in the vital higher education sector in Ethiopia and South Sudan. The project will be implemented by Reconnect in partnership with local non-governmental organizations, Windle International and the Good Samaritan Association in Ethiopia, both respected charities with a wealth of experience working in South Sudan and Ethiopia. You may also be interested to know that in addition, we are currently working into further projects to benefit higher education institutions in South Sudan and Ethiopia. Firstly, we are working with Computer Aid International on a project to supply desktops and laptops to a number of such institutions. I was in South Sudan uh, last year and I visited um, uh, the biggest university in Juba, which is a capital city, Juba University with 10,000 students 
and they only have about 50 uh, computers, some of them dysfunctional. Uh, it's really, uh, that's, that was really worrying to see. Secondly, we have received a donation of several hundred higher education textbooks from Queen Mary College, University of London, which we are exploring ways to deliver to such institutions. The books cover disciplines including mathematics, statistics, IT law, and etc. In conclusion, I would like to suggest a few points, if I may, as to what we can do to advance the cause of refugees' higher education in the UK. I suggest that we widen the scope of enlightened initiative taken by SARS to provide a scholarship program for refugees, to learn from the experience of SARS scholarship program for refugees and to seek its possible replications in London and other UK universities by working closely with respective students, unions and academics to explore the possibility for students, unions, and academics to work in collaboration with refugee organizations such as Reconnect, for example, to raise the required funds to cover the cost of learning materials and transport for the beneficiaries of a scholarship, uh, which I learned is only few waivers at uh, SOAS, to champion the cause of refugees' access to higher education through intensive advocacy and campaigning activities. Uh, I think I should finish, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you, Dennis. That was really interesting. Um, thank you all for listening. I hope, obviously, this is all relevant uh, to the campaign, and it's given us all some more header ideas about campaigning as well. Um, next, I'll pass over to Dami, uh, who's the project coordinator for Let Us Learn. Thanks, Dami. Thank you. Um, I just want to start by saying thank you so much for inviting me. It really is a pleasure to, to be here amongst all of you, especially when um, I heard that the aim is to inform people about, or educate people about the um, barriers asylum seekers and migrants face. So although I'm not um, an asylum seeker or refugee, I am a migrant. <laughs> so I'm going to take you through sort of my journey in life and how I got involved with the Let's Learn campaign, how I came to this position of being a Let's Learn campaign coordinator or project worker, and my uh, passion to sorry get migrants into education. Um, so I was born in Nigeria, um, and it was all great. I lived with my grandparents, and I loved it, absolutely loved it. I um, had loads of cousins, African homes, of course. You always have loads of people. That was, it was never a dull moment. I was always happy and... Um, I, w- I, w- I always had people to talk to um, but then when I was eight my mum came and she was like we're going over to you know, the United Kingdom because my dad was here at that time and I didn't even know that um, so you know we came, it was m- my biological mother and my brother we came over to the UK, it was so cold, oh my gosh <laughs> I just, it was because we came February the 1st um, 2002, it was freezing I was so cold, I was shivering, I was practically like clinging onto my brother because I was so cold um, and I'm so sorry to say this, but I'd never seen white people before. <laughs> it was the first time <laughs> I'd ever seen white people in my, in my entire life, and I was so, so excited. I was like, oh my gosh, there's different, like, obviously in my language, there's different, like, loads of different colours of people. I never knew this. I was just so excited, and um, eventually we enrolled into school, and school was amazing. It was like an escape um, of life, really, and I just loved it. I loved learning. I remember during my first time um, in primary school, I didn't learn how to speak English. Oh my gosh, it was so embarrassing. Um, <laughs> didn't know a word of English, and um, it meant that I couldn't really participate in a lot of things that other people could. Um, so 
already I was kind of isolated. Um, but then being eight, you kind of, being that young, you kind of get on with it and you tend to find your feet eventually. So moving into secondary school, I my English had picked up. I was fine. I, um, I got involved a lot more in school. Um, I started basically um, running, like running class because I was really, like, I really love running. Those who don't know, I, I'm like, oh gosh, I just love running. Um, so I set up a running school, uh, a running club, and it's still going on right now. Um, this is like seven years later, um, which I'm extremely proud of. I became student voice. School was amazing. I loved learning. I loved all of it. I just, it felt like an exciting period of my life and I never had anything to worry about you know I never had any worries in the world I, I just expected my my parents to kind of look after everything and um, I'd always known I was a migrant because I always knew I was different I never thought that I was a British citizen I never had a British I didn't even have my own passport let alone a British, British passport so um, I always knew I was a migrant it wasn't something that was hidden from me so I'm very very grateful for my parents for not keeping that from me because most students do not know that they are migrants until it comes to applying for university and then they hit with it that oh my gosh they need papers to be able to uh, they need to be they need to have documents to be able to go to university um, and then sixth form came and I was about 17 at this time everyone was getting really really excited for university applying and people were talking about the first choice and second choice and I literally couldn't bear it I couldn't bear the thought of knowing that I wasn't going to be able to join them because I was still undocumented I didn't have anything to apply for university with so I would walk away and then my status came and I was 21 at this point and I was so excited and over the moon really really happy that you know I thought that that was it I could stop looking over my shoulders and I thought I was safe I thought I could apply for uni and just get on with my life I was just so excited to literally get on with life and so I applied for university as soon as I could and I applied to Royal Holloway because it was the only university I wanted to go to I'd been looking at it for such a long time I'd gone there a few times it looked like Hogwarts and I was so convinced that that's just the uni that I needed to be in and so it was it was I felt like my life would finally just start properly and then when I did apply I got in and it came back with international fees so I was like, what's there? No, 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 no. There's got to be a mistake somewhere. Literally a mistake somewhere. So I um, I rang Royal Holloway and this woman picked up and I told her I'm not an international student. You know, I've got I've got my status. I'm able to, I'm a lawful resident. I'm able to go to university. And then she, you know, explained the rules to me and just said that that's not the case, that I should look things up. And I think I saw red at that moment. I was so, so disappointed and so, so gutted that I think I even ended up screaming at her, not because I wanted to. I think it was just all the frustration of the things that had happened and the events that happened throughout my life. And then knowing that I wanted to go to university and this is the one thing that I really wanted to do, I was going to be blocked from doing it. So I just, I guess I couldn't put myself together and I ended up crying to sleep for days on end eventually I thought no I need to do something about the situation so I started looking online for scholarships and then luckily Chrisanne Jarrett who is the founder of Letters and came up on the Guardian while I was just randomly scrolling through Facebook so when I read it I looked up just for kids law and I thought, oh, if they could help her, they could help me. So I got involved with Just For Kids Law and Let Us Learn campaign in January, so last year. And it was something that I really wanted to do because I thought my situation was going to be sorted out. And it, it kind of is as well. And then when I started going to like the events and stuff and really looking at the campaign closely, I realised I wasn't the only person in the situation. There were so many of us in the situation. And I guess if my situation couldn't be sorted out 
the next thought that I had was, well, how about trying to get other people into university? Because there was just too many of us in that situation. So I got really active, I got really involved. And then the Supreme Court case came up in, in the summer of 2014. And it was about a girl who had also been in the same situation as us. So she'd been born in Zambia and head girl of her school, unable to go to university because she also didn't have settled status, although she was lawful in the UK. So we intervened in that case and there was about 25 to 30 of us young people just standing outside the Supreme Court rallying and screaming, let us learn, let us learn, and it was awesome. And then the judgment came back and it we had won, so that was a win for us. But although we won, we still realised there was still a lot of work to do because there was still a three-year wait. And I just remember at first we didn't understand it because when we all came out of the... Of the um, court we were all crying and laughing and hugging each other there was just a lot of mixed emotions but we didn't really understand that there was actually going to be a three-year wait and it wasn't until it was properly broken down to us that we realized actually all only some of us could go and any and most of us will still be like left behind and then I eventually got employed to work on the campaign to work on let us learn completely and that is what I'm doing now and it's just about empowering young people because our vision when we at the beginning of this year, our vision was for all young people living in the UK to be able to access higher education. And to do that, we needed to empower young people. To do that, we also did to lobby government into making change. And to do that, we also needed to inform and educate the public sector regarding migrants, because there's a lot of stigma out there regarding people who weren't born in the UK. So those are the three things that we are trying to do so that people can gain, or migrants can gain access to higher education. I guess I uh, probably want to start uh, there actually, which is um, we, we shouldn't allow ourselves uh, to be sold the business of dividing between different people, you know, the deserving people and the undeserving people, and who should be allowed and who shouldn't be allowed in, when seemingly I suspect the people who run universities believe their children are always deserving and always uh, have a right to go to university and we shouldn't, we shouldn't allow ourselves to be tempted by any of those sorts of arguments even if they feel strategically valuable and some tactically valuable you know to aim towards a goal I think it's often much more important to be principled and say that actually we believe that this categorization this desperate attempt to divide as it turns against certain people and neglect certain people actually makes it more difficult for absolutely everybody to progress and for everybody to have the access to university that they deserve University is very good at making uh, uh, grand claims about themselves, you know, about these institutions of quality and, you know, decency. And humanity, and they make all sorts of claims about the pursuit of knowledge and its importance and significance, and, 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 and I guess most of us would agree with those claims. But why then are we so, uh, why then are we not so enthusiastic when there are people who are so profoundly like enthused by the thoughts of education so profoundly demanding that they too have access to the institutions that we have access to why then do universities suddenly find themselves uh, dithering and suddenly find themselves uh, you know hesitating on the question when it comes to the question of recruiting students uh, who are paying you know high fees suddenly the business of encouraging talking about how important you know the, the incredibleness of university and how you should come in and so important suddenly becomes forefront of the recruitment strategy, but suddenly when it comes to the business of people who are asking to be educated, but happen to be in refugee camps, or happen to be in Calais, or happen to be destitute on the streets of, of, of London or other parts of the UK, 
suddenly the same often the same enthusiasm, the same language used about education suddenly dissipates and, 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 and disappears. Um, and I think I think a place like SOAS has a very particular sort of duty because I mean I, I never went to SOAS, but even I used to when I was in London I'd often go to lectures in SOAS because SOAS has a very distinct character, a very distinct culture, a very distinct curriculum even, right? And because of that, there's, there's a certain internationalism to SOAS. And if there's anywhere that should be amongst the universities who are leading the way towards making acceptance and admission and having the maximum number of scholarships and the maximum number of opportunities for students who are asylum seekers, who are refugees, and who are migrants to be studying at a university, the university should be SOAS. This is my, my thought. Um, now, if you want to have yourself... I mean, there's... there's, there's you know, there's, there's the people who are currently, you know, stuck in purgatory in northern France. And then there's the refugee camps throughout the world uh, where people are literally every day being filled with more and more despair at their condition and the situation. And then there's the people who are destitute on the streets of the UK. Now, if you want to very easily and very quickly have yourself filled with the necessary indignation to then go out and do something, um, I would go down to any local charity you can find that works with asylum seekers and refugees and you will find something Something you'll you'll hear stories that are that will will genuinely fill you with indignation and will genuinely make you think. I did not think that was even possible. Even listening to to your story, actually, as a migrant, like it makes me. I don't know if any of you, but it makes me angry that that's actually that anyone can be made to go through an experience like that just to find themselves at university. I was talking to uh, um, 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 one of the uh, uh, one of the workers at a charity in Sheffield uh, that works with uh, asylum seekers, and he was saying that one of the asylum seekers was living on five pounds a week. And that was because an, an over, I don't know what the phrase actually, I don't know what the word used for people who love their job a little bit too much, but there was a, one of those sorts of characters who was a, a, a littered sort of person, you know? And he caught him littering, you know? And of course, he said, listen, I'm really sorry about that. I picked it up. He picked it up and everything. He said, no, no, I'm sorry. You're paying like a 50 pound fine for that, right? A fifty-five fine to someone who's on like you know thirty pounds a week or twenty pounds a week is absolutely. I mean, eventually they were able to negotiate a deal with the council. And the very fact it took him negotiate a deal with the council to mean he only had to pay half of his money or half of the money that he was living on. He's only living on about ten pounds a week anyway, right? In in his situation, so he's living on five pounds a week. And I said to the, I said to the assistant, how does he survive? And he said, well, what he does is he has a he literally has almost like a chart, and he knows where he goes for breakfast on a Monday. There's this church here. And for lunch, there's this place here. And on, on, on like a, 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 a for dinner, he tends to go here. And on breakfast, on Tuesdays, he knows. And it's that sort of coordination that people living in the UK are going through that because the laws are so poorly made. Because our willingness to extend the dignity that we believe that we are due to other human beings comes to a border at that point, right? And those in power maintain those borders and serve as guards over those borders of human dignity and decency. And I think that is a bit that should make you all angry and make you think it's absurd, make you think that if you were to get involved in something that opposed that, that would be worthwhile. And of course, even the very poverty found in, in, in these, in these you know, so-called faraway places where people are coming from, that poverty has, has colonialism to answer, that poverty has all sorts of historic reasons to answer uh, for. And if I, I, don't, I don't enjoy the lectures of those who have inherited the gifts of colonialism when they are, when they are lecturing those who have inherited the burdens of colonialism. Um, I think in this condition, finding ourselves often uh, 
fortunate by virtue of where we are. We, um, we have certain duties, I think. And we have a duty to use whatever weapon we have. Every single one of us has some sort of skill that is, that is valuable to the campaign that's happening at SOAS, the campaigns that are happening on other campuses, and campaigns that are happening beyond campuses to try to change the law and to increase the number of scholarships, to increase the number of opportunities for asylum seekers, for refugees, and for migrants. If you're a law student, you're particularly useful. If you're a law student and you find yourself in any way capable of challenging the law, if you're a law student and you find yourself in any way willing to volunteer your time towards people who are trying to navigate their way through legal systems around the world, especially I actually was uh, hearing a case of a, a group who was saying that um, uh, what they were really needing is people who had even the most basic understanding of law, uh, least it be valuable for migrants who are trying to make their way through the Hungarian legal system who are stuck there, right? And translators, anyone who knows any languages that can help to negotiate across borders, often when people are being stopped all the more, and can do this over Skype and things like that. And it's about setting up schemes like that. It's about pushing for more scholarships because, uh, and making sure those scholarships, making sure those scholarships cover living costs as well. Because it isn't enough to tell somebody. It's actually, I actually think there's something cruel about telling somebody that here are your, uh, here is your, um, uh, here, here is enough money to do the course. That's it. You know, and saying to them, "Oh yeah, uh, eating, living, all that sort of stuff—that's your problem." When you know the conditions they come from, and you offer that, there's something cool about that. And I, 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 I like to think it's an oversight. And if it's an oversight, I like to think that universities, as quickly as possible, will rectify those oversights. Um, accommodation. Universities have accommodation. Universities have large, large spaces. Those things are both true, and not especially with asylum seekers. Many of them are left out in the cold all the way through the day and can only go to the night shelters at night. If there is spare accommodation at your university, push your university to see if they're willing to open that up to asylum seekers. If the rooms are empty and they haven't had capacity, in what world does it make sense to leave so one person on the streets who needs that room and to have that room unoccupied? It doesn't make any sense to me at all. So push your universities on those. And push, push them also on the question of space, warmth. Often warmth is all that people are looking for during the day and something to do. If there are computers, laptops, something, and somewhere warm to go, go there. Actually, even um, Sheffield Students' Union has a policy to give equal access to the student union to students and refugees, and students and asylum seekers. To give them the same rights to use the facilities, to use the spaces, and so on and so forth. It's not perfect, but it helps to at least offer one more of those little pieces in that patchwork. That person will be calculating, where do I go to stay warm, where do I go to eat? You know, those sorts of things. Uh, it becomes incredibly important. Now, sorry, confused my notes because uh, I partly can't read them, but um, join a campaign. If you're at SOAS, join the campaign at SOAS. Because in the end, the thing that keeps you motivated, that keeps you wanting to carry on doing things, is that you're surrounded by people who are also pushing in the same direction. You know, how you dedicate your time, how you dedicate your attention is possibly the most significant thing you can decide. And the more of you that can decide that you want to dedicate it towards making the lives of asylum seekers, refugees and migrants more e easier when there are so many forces in society that are trying to make it more difficult, the more important. And actually, you made a point about, uh, about the media. And it, suddenly universities have platforms, they have connections to media, and they have connections towards speaking out into the world. Ask your university have you used those platforms to try to challenge something of the narrative in the media around migrants and asylum seekers and around refugees? Have you used those opportunities? Have professors used their platforms? Have people used their platforms? Because we know what's happening on the other side. We know what the, university, what, the, uh, what the newspapers are filled with every single day. 
Right? We know what the commentators and the pundits and the other types are saying every single day, and therefore we have a duty to say the opposite and to say it more forcefully and to say it more often and to say it to more people as much as we can. And that is a duty we have to our fellow human beings. So I'm going to end by just saying that sometimes we, the, the wings that we see around us, the scholarships that do exist, the, the, the wings we, 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 we see in everything from access to education, not just for my for home students as well, and all these access for accessories, every single win we have around welfare, every single win we have around services at universities, every single one of those took some sort of struggle and some sort of fight. And sometimes we win, and it's good, and sometimes we lose. And our duty when we're winning is to win as much as possible, as many scholarships as possible, as much space as possible. And when we lose, our duty is to, uh, when we're being challenged, our duty is to defend as much as possible, to protect as much as possible, but to hand over to the next set of people who are going to join the same struggle for justice, hand over to them that knowledge as well, which is that they should defend what's been won as much as possible and to win as much as possible. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, that was really powerful work. Thank you. Um, what uh, I'm going to do is just uh, very briefly um, just say that I really do hope that you will get involved in the campaign having been here today. Just before I take a few questions, um, I'll take about three questions at a time and, and then we'll put them to the panel. I'll see therefore a particular person on the panel. Just let me know. Um, as I said, I really, really do hope that you get involved in the campaign. Um, and as Abby has mentioned, we are really talking here about legacies and about um, paying back uh, what has been, what, uh, well, just actually giving a little bit back uh, to the colonial legacy, which is very much a part of SOAS, as I'm sure you're all aware. Um, and it is a centenary of SOAS, which obviously was a school to train colonial administrators um, when it first started. So it really is about time that we did something about that. And we've already been overtaken by tens of universities um, and we really should have been leading uh, this force for equal access and for education beyond borders so I really really hope you get involved in it um, m m more often than not what we are coming up against is um, the excuse that SARS doesn't have any money um, so Hannah from the SU who was here earlier did a lovely calculation today and has spare time and worked out that if a very small amount of the top earners um, that work at SOAS um, whose salaries are available to be online took a 0.8% uh, pay cut to actually fully fund all of these scholarships with living costs. So there is money. <laughs> it's really just about choosing where it goes and I hope that um, we really push to see it uh, reallocated to those that need it so that this uh, is not a place for the privileged and for the rich but for everyone to come um, so that they can all learn and, and have an equal chance um, to progress through life and not just be sitting and wasting their talents. Um, so yeah, uh, any questions uh, for the panel? Uh, I don't have my glasses on so I don't see you, might just have to wave at me. Um, so I'll just take uh, this one at the back there, first of all. Hi, my question is for Theodoros. Uh, Initially, at the beginning, you spoke about governments um, kind of sidestepping or dodging their responsibility towards refugees in the UK. You then went on to discuss your work with Reconnect and working back home in Sudan and Ethiopia. I'm not sure you didn't mention who your donor partner is in, in this project, but um, do you think that project in any way is absconding the government, UK government's responsibility to domestic refugees uh, by funding projects in Ethiopia, in Sudan, in Somalia, as they do, unfortunately, most of the time, 
badly mismanaged and have little result in on what happens on the ground in those countries. But it's kind of their way of, um, you know, passing the baton, as it were, and saying, you know, we fund refugees in the we fund refugees on the border between Ethiopia and South Sudan, so therefore we are doing our bit to, to fund refugees as it is already. Um, that's my question for, for Tedros. Uh, for the young lady, Dami, uh, you didn't actually mention whether you, you went on to enroll at university and what your situation is uh, and how it developed. Okay, I'll treat, I'll treat that as two questions, so if I just take one more and then I'll um, pitch into the panel. Um, yeah, if you can it. I think it's a little bit of a counter to that. With regards to refugees that are not in the UK, uh, and I'm not sure who would actually like, be able to address it, so anyone on the panel, uh, is there any initiatives that are actually being done to uh, allow them to be able to access UK education the way that the U.S. has access to these programs, uh, because I know that the UK is, is, is quite difficult for that, but there are refugees that aren't able to even reach the stage of entering the UK, but have very, very terrible conditions. And as, as the UK, are there any incentives? I, I've just put it out there. Um, okay. Your repeat is not clear. Yeah, sorry. Can you just repeat yeah. the question? Um, so, yeah. for the refugees that are not in the UK, so refugees that are currently, for example, Palestinian refugees, uh, Palestinian refugees from Syria, Syrian refugees that have not been able to reach areas such as Europe, uh, and they're stuck in host communities in areas like Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, and even Syria. Is there Are there any initiatives that are being done to be able to uh, have them access the educational systems within the UK uh, as refugees? So being able to create that. Do you mean apply it outside of the UK? Yes. Yes. Uh, if, I, if I just pitch these and then I'll come back to you, is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Just so that we don't forget. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, uh, do you want to go first? Yes, uh, the, the question that you raise is very important, yes. Uh, initially, I said that, you know, after the end of the Cold War, the justification giving for not giving a scholarship to refugees was Oh, now we're going to invest in developing countries, in country training. And the program that we are undertaking now, does that undermine our campaign to get funds for refugees in the UK? Yes, that's, I accept that, <laughs> that line of it. But on the other hand, also, we, as an organization, we have a responsibility uh, to, 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 to advance the cause of education in developing countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, which we have prioritized. Uh, because uh, the idea, one needs to look at education as a holistic factor. Now, the, the, the sons and daughters of the region will always find a way to come and study in, you know, in developed countries. But the quality of education in developing countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, has been deteriorating. Uh, people get degrees, but what kind of degrees? And this, you know, this needs to be addressed. Governments, of course, many governments are not addressing this. So one of our responsibility, as we saw it as an organization, is also to see ways refugees, for example, uh, Somali refugees can teach in Ethiopia or South Sudan or vice versa if they are unable to go back to their countries of origin. So the, the, the return of uh, skills 
to developing countries often to address the issue of brain drain also remains important. But I accept your point that it can be used as an excuse uh, not to give. We, are, we haven't still received funding for this project. We, are, we have submitted to DFID, to United Nations in Geneva and other also agencies in, 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 in Nordic countries. So, yes, thanks. Yeah. Um, just very briefly to add to that, I think it's really important that we think about this issue outside of borders, so not in this country, in that country, uh, because what that's actually allowed to happen is for governments to pass the buck, essentially, and push it out of the border and make it someone else's problem. So I think moving forward, really about trying to change this rhetoric about whose country does this occur in, whose responsibility, whose responsibility is it? Well, it's not mine, actually. They've crossed the border, so it's theirs. And actually, it's all of our responsibilities. And this sort of mm-hmm. is this border thinking so harmful, and I think it's actually what's caused a big part of the problem in Europe. Anyway, that's just me rambling. Yeah. Um, can we take the next question? Yeah, of course. Um, you mentioned um, did I eventually go to university in my progression? Sorry if I wasn't being very clear earlier on. No, I didn't enrol into university. I got my status in 2014, and I still need, uh, and I still have to wait another two years before. I enrol into university, at which point I'll be 25, um, or two and a half years, yeah, which point I'll be 25, and therefore would need to have lived in the UK for more than 20 years, um, hence why I work on the Let's Learn project, and I'm trying to get people into university. I hope that answers your question. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. if yeah, I think it's a really interesting point because there are lots of different models that are being explored or have been implemented to try and find ways of people who are not in Europe or in countries but are closer either in neighbouring countries to conflict countries to find ways of progressing to higher education. For example, in the States there are quite a few scholarship programmes that would take people from their country, sometimes with a view to then returning people. So there was a project looking, a few years ago looking at students from Iraq and taking them to the States, the idea being that they would have a degree there and then go back as a kind of durable solution for them mm-hmm. and to invest in their country. Mm-hmm. And in Canada they have a programme on higher education that is actually a resettlement programme that uses higher education as a way of resettling people. Um, there are lots of models going on. We're actually doing some research into this at the moment, looking at models for higher education in different countries around the world, particularly in camp contexts. And it's a really emerging sector. There's some really interesting models looking at how you can do online courses, but also how you can combine that with um, class-based learning. So you've got a mix of sometimes an Australian university, for example, that I visited in on the Thai-Burma border was using kind of Skype and stuff for lectures and so there's really interesting approaches basically in terms of your question we're not really doing that in the UK there's nothing happening at the moment but one of the things that the government is looking at in terms of Syrian resettlement is how to explore things like sponsorship models which have been done in other contexts whereby different communities or institutions will take some sort of responsibility for offering support to someone who is being resettled and I think it's, it's not something that's decided yet, but I think it's certainly worth institutions being aware of these ongoing conversations with the government about sponsorship models mm. and how those could be, whether universities could play a part in those. But it's not mm. really happening now. Uh, can I also add uh, that, uh, unfortunately, there aren't a well-established scholarship programme for, uh, you know, for refugees new, uh, from North Africa and the Middle East. 
uh, apart from the, uh, the, the I mean, for, for the <coughs> before uh, what you for, but there are scholarship programs for uh, African refugees from the Horn of Africa. There's an organization called Windel International who, who, who supports refugees to come to study in the UK. And they also work around universities to get as much scholarship as possible. And that model can be served to support refugees, you know, from North Africa and Middle East and where we have now from Afghanistan. So I think it's good that also one uh, gets in touch with Windle International. They are based in Oxford. Uh, so if you need further information, I can pass it to. Yeah, Great. I can pass it to. Um, I mean, uh, this campaign uh, itself, Education Beyond Borders, won't be working uh, on a resettlement uh, model just because um, we don't like to do anything that David Cameron likes to do. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're aware of this institution and also the government being forced to kind of accept a little bit of uh, migration into the country and therefore t- telling everyone what is acceptable migration and what isn't. And this is, so this is going to be, uh, as an institution a campaign, a very broad campaign uh, and, and accessible to everyone. So, yeah, just uh, thank you about us again, sorry. Uh, I'll take some more questions if you want to go. Yeah, just two brief questions. Um, I guess the first one is, because you were saying you know, you're trying to move away from being an issue of borders, is there any kind of, I guess this question is aimed more towards Emily, is there any kind of global approach or universities kind of talking to each other around the world to kind of see what kind of funding what there is and so you know when you look at refugees on a global scale you kind of can budget on you know to have fair treatment for refugees and also you know just more money in one place and then also my second question is um, in the UK tuition has increased and there's you know UK students and recently UCL there was a protest as well with the fees and stuff mm-hmm. and then the UK government are kind of encouraging um, some children to go on to apprenticeships etc so I know the focus is on higher education and it's not fair to say to refugee or do an apprenticeship but is there kind of are we looking at alternatives as well for example willing to do apprenticeships mm-hmm. for refugees you know, just they'd still gain some sort of skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like, it could be a viable solution. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, like, um, I, I, I enjoyed the event. Um, so, something I've noticed uh, about a lot, a lot of these discussions that are pretty popular in the public arena right now is that uh, a lot of this talk about um, education for migrants, for asylum seekers, for refugees implicitly rests on this presumption that we need to invest in human capital for uh, the benefit of the British economy. So, like, is, is, there, is there any way to, like, potentially break out of the... Are we trapped in that uh, form of logic when it comes to an issue like this because of political realities? Or is it, like... Because it does seem that if we... Even if we do manage to do that, we end up accelerating global inequality at the same time because of how human capital works mm-hmm. and, how, and how what we end up generating in countries like the United Kingdom as a direct result of policies like that. But at the same time, is there anything else we can really do? Okay, thank you. Um, I did say that. Yeah, do you want to? Um, I'm just going to add on to the question previously asked about um, funding 
example, external scholarship that outside the British border. Although you say this is not, we are trying to think beyond borders, mm -hmm. but it just makes, I don't know how, whoever wants to contribute on that, it makes me feel, or it just makes me think of like funding external uh, you know, programs in order to protect the borders when we have the biggest crisis, maybe it's next door in Calais, one mm -hmm. of the biggest crises. Yeah. Um, do you think that is being, some extent is being used to escape that, uh, take a responsibility for what's happening within our, within the British border or even in the British border and emphasising external you know, scholarships? Does it go in line with the, you know, Cameron's um, policies or keeping, you know, finding a solution where the problems are instead of taking responsibility? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm making sense. Mm -hmm. Did the panel understand that question? Yeah, you happy with that? Uh, okay, so I go to your question first. Yeah. Yours was for Emily? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it was, <laughs> it's a good question. Um, mm -hmm. I think in terms of global approaches, there, interestingly, in, in response to what's happened in Syria, there have been numerous kind of cross-border approaches and, you know, everyone kind of coming together to look at initiatives. And so I think there's talk about it. Because it's such an emerging thing, I'm not actually sure how successful or what that has actually led to. Um, and I think looking at kind of how the UK engages generally in sort of, you know, joint approaches to things like that, I'm not sure how much we would throw ourselves into that. Because I thought it would kind of mirror kind of... Yeah. With the Syrian refugees. Um, yeah. First, the box stopped in Germany, and yeah. so I think I think it's just one of those things. I'm not sort of ducking the question, but I think it's almost <coughs> too early to know because I I was at a conference today about the at the Home Office about the Syrian resettlement, and I think it is something that everyone is just trying to work out what it looks like and. I think often higher education particularly is not high on people's agenda. We, there was a set session today about ESOL and basic provision and then about getting people into work, which I think picks up on this guy's yeah. question about sort of developing capital here. But there was nothing really about education there that wasn't basic ESOL that would equip you for the workforce and enable you to contribute to British society. So I think there is a gap in that and definitely something that could be explored. I think in terms of your question about is it fair when British students are struggling as well, I think that's a really valid point. And I've often, I ran some training in um, for some social workers a while ago, and they're all social workers who have large caseloads of young people who are really struggling to access kind of a lot of stuff um, that people who weren't in care would, wouldn't be struggling to access. And they were really negative. They said, this is just not fair. I've got a huge caseload of British British young people who want to go to university it's really expensive why should we be giving scholarships to asylum seekers we don't even know where they're going to end up um, and I think it is a is a really valid, valid question I think one we should be happy to address within ourselves as well around is, is this fair and how does it feel um, I, I think I just look look to someone like Dami and think you know you, you look at someone who is so keen to get into education and going back to the Article 26 in terms of the Human Rights Convention, that education should be available to all and higher education on the basis of merit. I think, for me, that's quite compelling to say it should be on the basis of merit. Again, it raises questions about who funds it. I mean, I think I look at, at Dami and think, well, it just makes no sense that she can't get student finance. She's not asking to be paid for through university. What she really wants is access to the loans that would will enable her to participate um, 
I think realistically, as we've seen, it's an issue that is going to have to be campaigned on more and more. And so for now, until that's resolved, we have to look at other alternatives like universities kind of creating these schemes. And I think people are looking into alternatives. I think I I wouldn't certainly wouldn't be saying that every refugee or asylum seeker should be able to go like should be in university because it's not right for everyone. And I think one thing that I found with the young people I've worked with, often they really lack the advice as well about what options are available to them. And I think to make people aware that these kind of alternatives exist, some of the challenges around apprenticeships are also connected to right to work and other things that come connected with different immigration statuses. So sometimes those things are prohibitive. But I think people are looking into different things. But I think, like we're seeing, it takes all different sorts of approaches from different different angles. If that I can just contribute to the um, alternative. Is there any other solution? There any um, other alternatives that people could go through? Um, yeah, there are. Um, there are things out there. However, I try to tell that to the academics, the people who want to go to university. We've got a young um, guy who we work with closely called Emmanuel, who <coughs> studies, now studies chemistry at Imperial. If he wasn't able to do that, he wouldn't be able to do anything else. That that is his passion. That's what he wants to do. There's no other alternative for him in his eyes and try to tell that to people who, do, who want to do medicine at university you can't practice medicine without having a degree you have to go through all that so it's just that there are alternatives out there yeah and some people have taken that and that's absolutely fine but there's so many people who are so keen to get an education who just love learning and don't want to stop okay about the global approach to for, for this campaign, there was an organization called World University Service. I don't know how many of you are aware of this organization. Uh, it, it basically coordinates uh, the support for refugees in higher education in Europe, in Canada. But the organization has, has been weakened. I hardly it exists. It was based in Geneva, the, the main office. So in the absence of that organization, I think we need to continue working around uh, refugee academics, uh, academics uh, in universities as well as uh, um, student unions. I mean, what SOAS started now, this campaign, can be, uh, I think, widened to include UK and hopefully also to widen in Europe. So there is a possibility. The issues that uh, one of our colleagues raised there is important. We hear a lot about education for employment in this country, and the bigger picture is lost. You know, and we need to be uh, to, to to create awareness about the underlying causes of displacement. Uh, you know, among the the public in the UK, we normally have Refugee Week uh, and also other events in, um, in, my, in the organization that I work with. And also we make use of uh, our refugee teachers who are teaching in, in further education, you know, to create, to, to organize events to be able to, to, you know, to address issues that are uh, wider issues that the public should learn. There's always this tendency to see refugees, as, to divide refugees as economic and political refugees. Uh, that needs to be tackled as well. Anyone else on the panel want to go back <coughs> to any other questions? Uh, to any of the questions. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, actually, when you mentioned the apprenticeships, because um, um, actually what you said uh, actually sort of counteracts it, you know, around the law and around the right to work and that. Because I was actually thinking, um, at, at Sheffield, we're just like developing high-quality uh, apprenticeships who will actually end up getting degrees 
from the university, but they can go through an apprentice route to get there. And it'll be the, I think it'll probably the first scheme in the country doing something like that. And there's just hundreds of these being built. And actually, the, the site of it, I, I'll admit one thing in advance, some of the people, some of the companies who are collaborating to make it possible are questionable. But, um, but it is hundreds of apprenticeships for working class kids on what used to be the former site of the Battle of War Group, if any of you know about the 1984-85 miners' strike and the, and the sort of uh, struggle around that, and an area that was left in incredible poverty post the, uh, the, the Thatcher avalanche that sort of just hit the north, and especially those sorts of towns and, and, and villages. And I think you've just, you, I mean, I guess I'm taking your idea and I'm going to see if I can, I can go with it and see if uh, someone at the university thinks that, um, that it would be possible, if there's a way of talking to the government, a way of working out an arrangement where some people could actually go straight into that apprenticeship college and move through that. So I think that's, a, that's an idea. Let's see, let's see what happens with it. Um, with the human capital question, it's a question, I guess, that probably bothers anyone who, um, who is keenly aware of the fact that they are the child or the grandchild or the great-grandchild of someone who was colonised, occupied, who's, who, who's, 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 um, who essentially finds themselves here on this island uh, when, you know, when, when, the, when their ancestors uh, were... Well, and, I, and I, the reason I think it's a question that, that's posed to them as well is by the very business of educating yourself, working here, building up the capital and capacity of the United Kingdom, right? In a sense, is that in a sense a tribute to those or a, or a success in the long term for those who colonised and ended up, uh, ended up extracting from parts of the world first of all, their economic capital and value, but then, by, by their sheer poverty, their people in the end, where their people end up following, you know, following where the wealth and the opportunities went and end up finding themselves developing their lives there. So I know that's quite complicated for you, but I, I guess it's, uh, I feel like it's a permanent tension. I feel like it's a genuinely permanent tension, and it's, uh, I don't actually have an answer to it, other than to, 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 to despair of the uh, question, I don't, and also with your question, I don't. With your question, I don't think that um, um, I don't think it's at all cynical to think that David Cameron has been cynical. You know, I don't think that him saying that, uh, you know, him talking about the idea of people just staying where they are and getting educated there and, and we'll pay for it and all that. I don't think it should at all be um, uh, under the illusion that isn't to try to keep mm. them away. You know. Okay. We also need to be aware and campaign strongly. All donors, starting from DFID and major donors in Nordic countries, USAID, are focusing on basic education for developing countries. They have no interest in supporting higher education. Now, basic education, primary, secondary, is very important. But in the absence of higher education, the quality of uh, primary and secondary education will suffer for Therefore, the holistic approach to education is very important. Now, Comic really focuses on a number of, uh, you know, it's a number game. We have trained, supported thousands of people at primary education. I have the chance to see this, uh, the, the people they train. But the quality is very poor. Because unless you strengthen teacher training institutions at tertiary level, you are unlikely to solve the problem. There is also this... Um, a very, I would say, destructive view that, you know, small is beautiful, the 70s view of the NGOs that, you know, uh, Africa, for example, they don't need much training, you know, that, that's, you know, that, that adequate enough to support their 
That, that's dangerous. I mean, if you want to, uh, to really address the underlying causes of displacement and poverty, really higher education, primary and secondary, need to be seen as, in a, as a whole, as a unit, because the number game is, is what is destroying uh, education in developing countries. Um, are there any other questions? Okay. Thank you so much. This is such an enlightening talk. Like, I'm kind of ashamed of myself that I didn't know about people like praising Sarah, saying it's amazing. Like, other universities should follow the example and just like, well, actually, there's nothing you're really doing. So, thank you actually for that. It's, it's um, opened my mind. My question is a bit like maybe you know, a little technical question, but in terms of refugees that say, for example, um, were displaced because of war, etc., but had already been in higher education, so say they were in the first year or second year of their degree, and they come over here, does that change their status at all, or like, are they treated like formerly like, other people? Does it matter that they've been through higher, through higher education in another country? Does it not matter? <coughs> is that in terms of their qualification being accepted? Yeah, or like the fact that they've actually reached that stage, you know, that because uh, the cases that were provided, like it's unaccompanied child asylum uh, seekers. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you've already been through that process, perhaps, or you're just you just started that process. Does that affect the way that you're treated, or, or is it all the same? Okay, so um, just taking a question. I don't know if this is a sort of question or seeking some advice. Um, how do you think these scholarships, this initiative for refugees, can incorporate students like Dabi? Because there's a great difference between refugees and migrants and asylum seekers, and we don't distinguish this enough. So how do you think we can incorporate those students like Dabi with refugees? Mm -hmm. Okay. Then yeah, sure. um, yeah, it's, it's a great question, and I think there are two issues that need to be looked at. Firstly, the issue of immigration status and claiming asylum, and then the issue of education, and they're actually quite separate. So, when someone's coming to the UK and claiming asylum, it's not about kind of what they would bring to the UK or what their skills are. It's purely about whether or not they would be safe in the country that they fled. So, in that sense, education doesn't make a difference. They're looking at sort of how someone would be at risk of persecution under very specific grounds in their country of origin. So in the same way that education, having being in university doesn't necessarily stop someone from facing forcible removal from the UK, nor does it help you get into the UK. But in terms of when somebody's here, um, if they've been granted refugee status or some kind of protection status that enables them to progress to university... There can be challenges as well around that. So people who have already completed, say, the first year of their degree, even if they're eligible for student finance, sometimes there are issues that if you've completed up to a certain level of education before coming to the UK, you won't be eligible for student finance. Um, but there are also issues around English language levels, so people arriving who have the academic ability to move forward in their studies, but their English language isn't yet at the level to enable them to carry on in their, their particular subject or the qualifications that they have aren't recognised here, or they fled their country without proof of their previous education. So often there are those kind of barriers as well that we haven't really discussed tonight, but can mean that that, that is often delayed or, or made quite difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, and also when people come here, uh, I think the, the, the more educated people have the ability 
to express themselves, for example, in interviews to determine their asylum. And those less educated, or probably English is their second language, are in a very disadvantaged position. Uh, and the, the other the point mentioned about the qualifications being accepted uh, in the UK, so one has to go through a number of uh, challenging circumstances. In some cases, it's justifiable that they have to attend certain courses to be able to enter a certain course that they wish to study. Yeah, but uh, decision making, uh, for example, at the home office, to a light degree, uh, you know, does look at who the person is, not why, how, how, and where they were persecuted. Uh, and also, there is probably the unwritten dimension that you know, highly qualified and uh, well-educated refugees have a better <coughs> chance of getting asylum than those who are not. That's, that's a fact. Anyone want to go for this question? Yeah. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm talking a lot. Do you want to add something first? I've got something to say about this guy's question, but did you want to start? Or not? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> I just don't want to launch an answer, right? Um, yeah, I, th I think it's a really valid question because actually if we look back at the Article 26 model I talked about where they've created scholarships, it's specifically for people who've claimed asylum. So whether they're asylum seekers who are still waiting for a determination of their status or whether they've been granted discretionary leave or unaccompanied asylum-seeking children's leave. It, the campaign has kind of hinged around the fact that these are people who are fleeing persecution, that they're here seeking safety, that they're a very discreet category of people. And I think that, that has really helped the campaign take off because it was quite a clear ask. And I think something that going back to this guy's question about, you know, is it fair on British students? I think most people would then resonate with the fact that these are really vulnerable, displaced people, so we should help them. And so I think it's really worth questioning what then happens when you're bringing other groups within that, because it is a different situation. Dami's situation is very different to the situation of, say, Hamid, the boy that I talked about. Um, I don't think there's an, an easy answer to it, but I think what it's worth really doing, and particularly when you're campaigning, it's always hard to campaign on something that's so big, almost like education without borders. It's so beyond borders. It's so aspirational that sometimes it's hard, particularly when you're trying to translate that into policy or within university funding policy. So I think what, what it's worth recognising as well is that universities, the reason they might be reticent about this is the fact that they have... Um, highly trusted sponsor status to enable to give visa so international students to come and they're really scared of losing that status because it would decrease their income significantly if they got into problems with the home office and we saw that at London Met a few years ago when this whole issue of immigration within higher education kind of came to the forefront so I think it's worth noting that universities maybe want to help but are genuinely concerned about jeopardising their good relationship with the home office so I guess I'd encourage you all to think about what models exist and what best practice there is. So there's this Article 26 guide that addresses all these kind of issues, defines the terms. Um, so I think recognise there is a distinction, recognise that you may be asking for something broader, but you should be confident to think how you're going to frame that, but frame it in a way, draw on best practice to do it in a way that is going to reassure the university, not worry them that it's a kind of free-for-all. Yeah, um, and it, sorry, I'm very close to the microphone. Um, in relation to that as well, we have had a meeting with SOAS, several meetings with SOAS management, um, bearing in mind the amount of um, migration specialists that sit in an office just up above us. Um, when we asked uh, who management had spoken to in terms of external 
organisations or academics when forming this list of what they would deliver? The answer was no one. So I would argue that there is a little bit of a problem in terms of how much effort they want to put into it, really how far they want to go with it, because they have a kind of executive board that are shouting about a deficit, which doesn't exist, by the way. Um, you can follow that up online. Um, what we're actually asking for is for uh, access for people who've got leave to remain as a result of an asylum claim and Article 8, asylum seekers, stateless people and people who have humanitarian pre protection. Um, so the what we've asked for is, is very rigid. However, it is obviously an evolving practice which started with me and Amira sitting on a bit of grass <coughs> in the summer. And which is now here, so it, it's a constantly work in progress. Uh, we have asylum seekers um, who come to SOAS who will be part of the working group, and people like Demi are more than welcome to come and pitch their ideas to the university. We want to push this as broad as possible. SOAS has more than the knowledge that they need in order to enact this, but it's actually going to take them to ask some questions. Um, if they're unwilling to do that, we will make a big noise and tell them the answers to their questions. Can I also just Can say ask something? A question? Uh, yes, yeah, just, just let me go. <laughs> Sorry, um, just to make a clarification. Um, yes, that's correct. We're not asylum seekers. We haven't fled a country. However, coming here at the age of eight, we had no control over that. Yeah. And the people who are begging to get access to student finance are usually people who have been here for an extremely young age. That we, I work with so many people who have been here since they're six months old, since they were two, since they were five. And it's almost like they've gone through this whole education process, but then been blocked. Um, I just need people to understand that they're still people, and they don't see them as numbers. And people who are, yeah, we haven't fled any war or anything. But as young people, you have no control over where you're going. You follow people who are adults around you, mm. and I think that people don't understand that. And I also think that because today I was just talking to my colleagues, and I was saying that I was looking at all the universities. Um, that apply for scholarships um, or the universities that talk about scholarships and the, um, most people, most universities in fact I don't think any other than Sussex know the distinction between refugee and just normal sorry, just normal migrants like we are classified all as one so that automatically excludes us as in just normal migrants out of, like, it blows us out of the water completely because we're not seen as just migrants, we're seen as refugees and asylum seeker which isn't correct so that when we try to go and apply for the scholarships it doesn't work because we can't then claim that we are asylum sorry we can't then claim that we are asylum seekers so when looking at all the scholarships out there there is none for us only Sussex who we've just been working with are the only people who have been able to be lenient to provide two scholarships for people who are not um, who don't have asylum seekers uh, who are not asylum seekers and who haven't got limited leave to remain as a result of an asylum seeking claim. So just so I, I felt like I needed to Can I just out. clarify as well that when I said that, I... I no, it's not. Okay. Sorry, I, just, I, I, I don't also mean to communicate that that was my opinion or that I, I totally agree and I think it is this kind of... It's exactly the same thing, but I think in terms of how it's been framed in the past, it's been pitched... It's been an easier pitch to say, this is a refugee who's fled a war. You know, it's a war compelling story if you like for their sort of PR so <coughs> I totally don't yeah. mean that um, yeah. I just go yeah. in there. I just, uh, just add to, uh, I just carry on uh, what's particular to it actually is that um, 
the government isn't even funding education anymore. Like, it's handing out loans to people. There's no longer a question of a finite amount of grant or anything. They're now essentially put, passing everything on to a loan book, which they couldn't probably sell at some point anyway, right? Which they really have very little interest in just how much, you know, just how much into the education. So therefore, to me, it makes absolutely no sense that they would make it any more difficult for you to get a student loan, right? Other than, mm. once again, the sheer absurdity mm. at the centre of... Uh, government's uh, sense of people and bureaucracy. Okay, um, you're trying to find uh, full employment from Sarsia, you're trying to, to succeed in gaining uh, full scholarships including maintenance. Mm -hmm. But uh, from my experience and my organization experience, it might be also helpful to explore the possibility of providing part-time part degree programs because many refugees, because of their family circumstances and health reasons, may not be able to access full-time study. Mm -hmm. So that may help also, uh, in many sense, to find additional funding from other sources if you are on part-time uh, study programs, so that may be. I'm aware that everyone's itching to leave, so I just want to say um, a really, really big thank you for everyone. Did you want to speak? No, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, <I> guys. <laughs> Just to explain, um, Zion's uh, actually like heading our working group and campaign as an asylum seeker at SOAS and is a really valuable part of our group um, as of very recently. So, um, yes. yes. I mean, when I was going through this struggle of getting higher education, uh, my issue wasn't, oh my God, I'm an asylum seeker, so I was an asylum seeker, so I should, I should be entitled to um, education. The whole, my anger and my frustration was about my experience of being an asylum seeker or a refugee hasn't changed who I am. I haven't, like, I haven't stopped being a human being. I haven't stopped wanting to educate. I haven't, just like anybody in this world, you go to school, you go to primary school, secondary school, and then you, you plan. You, like, you plan your life. And situation changed around me, but my belief and my values and who, who I am as a person has not changed. So... I don't understand why I was being stopped to get higher education because of my experience. It was really, and like, and there was no support and there was no understanding and there are a lot of people who struggled. So I just was very frustrated. And the home office as an institution creates a sphere in you to, to say, oh no, you, you, can't, you can't challenge us because if you dare to challenge us, then we might deport you tomorrow. So it's like, we can't fight it. So the people that can fight is you guys and like whoever, whoever's got their nationalities and whoever got the right or the freedom to speak up. So now I've gone through that journey and I'm at the end of the journey. I'll be able to speak more. And if you if you know people and if you like if you care about this issue, I think it's really important to speak up and use your freedom because there are a lot of people right now who are not doing much because they are scared. It's a form of abuse. <coughs> they make you go through things I don't think you should as a human being go through because you want to educate yourself. That's true. I, I, I can't follow that. Thank you. This was a podcast by CISD SOAS, the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy. Thank you for listening.